Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and on this week's episode, reporter Jackie Valley sits down with State Superintendent Joan Ebert and asks her about her listening tours in various schools to learn more about the students from the schools. Then I chat with intern Mark Hernandez and KUNR reporter Paul Boger about an event at UNR in protest of said event with speaker Charlie Kirk, founder of conservative student group Turning Point USA. Later on in the episode, it's finally happening. Editor John Ralston gets the movie review segment that both he and the indie audience have been begging for. For the first review, John talks with reporter Jacob Solis about Joker. But before any of that, let's hear a few newsreels from Mark Hernandez that he also read this week for KUNR Reno Public Radio. And now from Daniel Rothberg. More than a dozen state and national conservation groups are imploring Nevada's congressional delegation to add permanent environmental protections into any future Clark County land bills. The group's letter comes as Clark County pursues public land legislation in Congress. It states that the process must include tribal consultation and that the legislation should have permanent protection for land conservation. If passed, the county's draft bill would open about 56,000 acres of federal public land for development, directing most of the potential growth down the I-15 corridor toward the California border. However, conservation groups have raised concerns that the draft legislation doesn't go far enough to protect public land or imperiled species, including the Mojave Desert tortoise, that are threatened by new development around the Las Vegas Valley. From Megan Messerly, the state is imposing more than 17 million in fines on 21 diabetes drug manufacturers that have either failed to comply with or were many months late in complying with a drug pricing transparency law. The fines range from $735,000 for one company to $910,000 for eight companies that have still yet to report the required information. In a series of letters, the Nevada Department of Health and Human Services told the companies that they have 30 days to either pay the fines in full or 10 days to request an informal dispute resolution meeting with the state. If the companies fail to respond, the department will refer the cases to the Attorney General's office to seek a court order to collect the penalty. The law, which was passed by the legislature in 2017, requires diabetes drug manufacturers to report production costs, profits, and other information to the state annually. For KUNR News, I'm Mark Hernandez with the Nevada Independent. Hi, this is Jackie Valley with the Nevada Independent and the Indie Matters podcast, and today we are here with Joan Ebert, the state superintendent in Nevada, and we're here to interview her about what she's learned in her first six months on the job. And right now she has embarked on a listening tour across the state. So Superintendent Ebert, can you tell us, first of all, where have you traveled so far on this listening tour? I have been to five different, well, four different school districts and the Charter School Authority. Uh, So the Clark County School District. Um, I started in Douglas, uh, went to Carson City, and then Story County. So it's been exciting time in those um, areas so far. And what's your goal in each of these visits? Just as advertised, listening. I have not been across the entire state in a long time. And so getting out into all of all 17 school districts, as well as the charter school authority, is very important. Listening to student voice, how they're experiencing education right now, listening to the teachers, to parents, administrators, support staff, it's, we, we are one state and um, one community, but we have many different aspects to our state. And so hearing all those various voices is, is very important. 
And so I know when we tagged along Monday to the elementary school in Las Vegas, you did a private sit down with some teachers and the principal of that building. Can you give us a sense of what you're hearing directly from staff in these listening sessions? Yeah. So what's lovely about education is how passionate our educators are. They want to see um, students achieve. And so as I've been um, talking with the, the teachers, especially at the elementary level, their heart and passion working with students is, is first and foremost. And one of the questions that I love asking is, if you could have what you want, what would you have? And for them, it was, in many teachers, it's the learning conditions And so making sure that focused on the education, what the goals are, what uh, standards are for the end of the day, and making sure that they're not taken off task with things that will not move the needle for their students, whether it's additional paperwork, meetings, committees, different things that don't add value to their work. They were making sure that I knew that those would be good things to remove from their daily tasks. And then just making sure that there, if anything is added, that everything has a laser focus of how does that affect student achievement. Is there a feasible or practical way to get rid of some of that paperwork or those extra things that they're concerned Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, some of it, the work that we do is mandated either from the federal government or from uh, the legislature or the department itself. And what is important is that we always uh, look at what we're, the work that we're doing and then evaluate to your point, you know, is it useful and, and can we make a shift? Men and women make the rules. And so men and women can change the rules. And we just need to go through a process. We don't want to break any laws. But if there are things that are not enhancing the environment of a classroom or moving the needle forward in education and helping our students, then we need to remove that roadblock. What I like to say is organized abandonment. So making sure that we go through the process because sometimes people don't understand a why behind a reason why something is done. And so they throw the baby out with the bathwater. So we want to make sure there's no unintended consequences at the same time when you make a shift, whether you're adding or deleting. Right. So now at this point, you've been to a few rural districts and then a large urban one being the Clark County School District. Can you talk about maybe some of the, the big differences between the two that you've seen and some of the similarities that people may not realize? Yeah, I'll start with similarities, and uh, that is the passion around serving students. And all the students wanting to have more hands-on experiences, CT, access to CTE coursework, I heard in every single school district, project-based learning, using their hands, connecting with their peers. Uh, there was a strong voice around connectivity and relationships. Also, to school safety. When I was up in Virginia City in Story County, extremely unique instance of how their campus is built across um, their middle school campus is built across a main road within the city. And that's just because how long it's been there and, and the size of the city. And so security within campuses is common across the state. Uh, differences is size. You know, I'll use Virginia City again and um, also Carson. You know, it's, it's one classroom per grade. 
and that's the entire school district where Clark County has basically 20, 20, 4,000 um, in one grade level. So size is is the obvious um, one. And then how you work within that size, it will be different within context. One of the concerns or frustrations we hear a lot down here is class sizes. How common is that across the state or is that more of an isolated problem within the rural districts? Or I'm sorry, the urban districts? It depends on the content area, and it also depends on the staff. In some school districts, the class size um, in a particular area may be larger because that is the only teacher that teaches that one subject area. And it just so happens um, that instead of a, a class size of 30, if it was a high school, it may be 35 or more. I was in classrooms here uh, in the Clark County School District, and there were classrooms that I walked into that were 25, 26, 27. Um, but there were also classrooms um, that were uh, much larger than that. So it really, I think the administration in scheduling the students has done the best job they can with the current resources that they have. Well, speaking of class sizes, on Monday we also saw a very unique setup at Mission High School. And for listeners who don't know what that is, that's a high school that I think is about three years old now in the Clark County School District that only serves students who are recovering from substance abuse and addiction issues. And so Superintendent Ebert stopped by, and I tagged along for that visit as well. And it was a fascinating roundtable discussion with both the principal some students and a parent at that school. You know, one thing that was loud and clear during that meeting was that the students unanimously thought the model needed to be expanded across the state. Is that a realistic proposition, and is it something you're looking at? I think when we're talking about meeting the needs of students, anything is a realistic proposition. I think the school district here had thought about it for for many years, and then made the determination that it was going to happen. That was an amazing experience um, to have that conversation, you know, with you in the room and the the students. The fact that some of the students were so frank to talk about that they might not even be alive if it weren't for the school and the faculty and the administration uh, there. I was thankful to be on that campus and to see those classrooms and how reflective the students were and how open they were with us on their addictions and how they're dealing with it and how they're going to move forward in their lives. And and what was most impressive is now that they have set goals, right, that they see that they have a path forward, that there are teachers there that care about them that the administration cares about them, that the school district is providing transportation, whether it's an hour away or 15 minutes away, they want them there at that school. I actually just had a conversation with Jeff Horn, who helped start that school. He called me today and said, you know, when are we going to open a school up north? And so talking with the Washoe County School District and others to find a way, I think, is, is very important to help. Um, students that need that specific um, environment to support them. You know, one thing that struck me, too, in that conversation was how much love there was in that room. The, the, The kids were openly talking about how much they care about each other and their principal and the teachers. And it was a little surprising to me because a few of them were very candid about their experiences at comprehensive high schools and 
said they just didn't feel that connection with their teachers, and they, their perception was that teachers didn't care at those schools. What did you make of a comment like that as you know, state superintendent and a former teacher yourself? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's all perspective, where they're coming from at that point in their life. Uh, I believe our teachers um, care about all of their students. When you have um, a classroom that is, and I'll just talk about my own experience, um, having a large classroom. I had pre-algebra. It was, it was pushing 40 students in a pre-algebra class. And I knew that some days when I left, it's like, there was someone in the class that, that I didn't have a connection with, and it's not because I didn't want to. Um, it was just the context of my classroom for that day. Um, and we need to make sure that that um, does not transpire. And so looking at how we're providing education in this state, and that's quite frankly why I'm doing the listening tour, like what are those big rocks, climate and culture, the class size being part of it. That's part of the learning conditions, students being able to learn, feeling connected with the educators. All of that is, is you know, it's part of an, uh, the onion, right? When you peel back, it's not just one piece because people can say, you know, well, just reduce class size and everything will be taken care of. And that that's not true either. So, Looking at all components of, of, of what we want to see um, our students to know and be able to do at the end of the day and then being systematic and strategic about how we move forward is, is important. So speaking of moving forward, once you finish this tour later this fall, what are the next steps? Um, so gaining all of the information and some of it, just phenomenal. And then some of it is, is keeping me up at night because I'm not sure I'm going to have all the answers. You know, I'm going to need to pull people together to help us get the answers. But legislature does require the State Department of Education to um, have an improvement plan um, every single year. And so we will be taking that information, um, reviewing our data that we have as well, metrics for students, and then adding that into our improvement plan, which is called the STIP. And then we provide that to the legislature. So it'll include improvement on student achievement. It looks at higher education, the allocation of resources, which we were just talking about. That will all be included in our plan. And then we will set goals and be very clear. I think also what I've heard as we've been listening is that in education, it happens because our communities grow and shrink and new people come in. You know, I'm six months on the job. Transparency and then clear communication. I think some people miss things because um, either we're not, we weren't transparent about what has transpired or we did not clearly articulate what happened at a shift that made something happen. Well, since you mentioned it, what are the things that keep you up at night? Oh, yeah, student success. I, you know, um, we're talking about uh, mission also, too, when I was um, at a middle school I saw some students that I couldn't tell if they were self-selecting not to be engaged or, you know, what what was going on. And so I always want to drill in on um, individual students and what's happening or working with the teachers. There were comments, again, and it goes to learning conditions that they were sharing, you know, whether it's paperwork or additional things that, that they don't see are actually helping and taking off the focus of the kids. 
Well, I wanted to switch gears here a little bit and talk about another big thing happening in the education realm, and that's the work being done right now by the Commission on School Funding. Uh, For listeners, this ties back to a bill that was passed this session that is going to overhaul the state funding formula for K-12 through education. Uh, So this group first met about a week and a half ago, and I think they have another meeting next week. You were there, and you listened to it, and you, you testified a little bit. What do you think is the biggest challenge that group faces? They're facing a formula that was 52 years old, right? I mean, it's it's not by accident that it stayed in, in play for so long because it's a, it's a big dang deal <laughs> to change it. So I'm very thankful that the legislature and the governor decided to take it on this session. There are many different components. And, and again, to the listening tour, I was speaking with parents and you know, the big question is, what happened to that marijuana money? Um, and so, you know, the funding formula was developed at a time, and, and it was great for its, its time, 52 years ago. But the children in our state are much different than, than our state was 52 years ago. And so this, making sure that we look at the entire state, making sure that we look at equity across uh, the entire state is is going to be important and it's going to be difficult work. There were models that were made through the session so people could start gaining an understanding. But I think what people didn't realize is, is that those were exactly that. They were just models. They weren't what's going to become the funding formula. So there are big decisions that still need to be made. Um, The bill is um, very clear and specific around those metrics and they'd like to see um, have happen. And so pulling in additional talent and resources to make sure we get it right to present to the legislature for them to be able to vote on next session is is, um, top of mind. You know, it was interesting in that meeting because... There were already some criticisms being thrown out there during public comment, one of them being that by the State Education Association that we have this formula, but we didn't add revenue, and will it make a difference? Can you comment on that and what you see as the path forward? Are they right? <laughs> yeah. So yes. Um, the the fact of the matter is is that and and people have said it, I'm not sure how much it's been absorbed. The commission on school funding is to focus on the formula, um, to make a determination on you know small school adjustments, small district adjustments, looking at administrative costs. It was not developed to look at optimal funding. It, now, let me back up. It, we are to look at, the commission is to look at optimal funding, but to find all of and make recommendations, but they will not be the final say on that. But you just look at data, uh, you know, $10,000 per student here in Nevada versus what is provided at other states. The state I just came from was $23,000 per student. And so, you know, making that determination on what is the right dollar amount for Nevada to make sure that our students can attain the skills that we expect them to, to be able to be productive citizens um, and to drive our economy, that's going to take time to make a determination on, on what the optimal funding is going to be. 
Do you expect them to complete their work with some sort of a timeline of how to get to an optimal funding number? I, yes, yes. I'm not even going to say I hope so. Dr. Lee, who is chairing the commission, um, is very passionate about this work. All of the commission members, I think um, the legislators did a phenomenal job in the selection of the commission members. It's a very diverse group of people, which is fabulous um, because you're not going to have, you know, one, one, one piece of information without it being brought around in perspective of rural, urban, suburban, and looking at what the needs are. So, yeah, they're, they're ready to tackle this work. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next eight months or so as they complete it. <laughs> Thank you, and good luck with the rest of your listening tour. All right, cool. Well, so right now I'd like to welcome to the podcast Paul Boger from KUNR. Hey, Joey. And also our intern, Mark Hernandez. Hey, how's it going? Good. All right. And you guys are at the KUNR studios, and I'm here in Vegas. Um, but you guys just went to a uh, pretty interesting rally at UNR. Yes, we did. What uh, What was it about? It was something with Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk? Well, well first, I'd, I'd hesitate to call it a rally, at least the cultural war event itself. Um, that was more along the lines of a presentation by Charlie Kirk, who is the founder of Turning Point which is this controversial conservative group that essentially is trying to do student outreach on campuses nationwide. That's where they got their start. That's where their kind of main focus is. And this particular event was essentially a a chance for, I guess, conservatives here on the college community, here on the UNR community to get together and at least hear from Charlie Kirk. You know, that that's what it was. It was you know, uh, talking about those conservative values that we hear so much about, small government, socialism's bad, the free market's good, stuff like that. Because his main <laughs> point is that there are no conservative outlets for college campuses. You know, he's like the voice for call it for conservatives on campus. Yeah, and that 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 was probably the main the main the, the main argument there is that on at least on the at least in college campuses there is a oversaturation of quote unquote liberal voices and f- too few conservative ones and, and this was a chance for as they put as they see it for conservatives to get together and and share views. So there was this 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 gathering inside the student union of conservatives, kind of in in Charlie's presentation. But then outside the student union, there was a there was a pretty substantial protest. It looked like. What did that look like to you guys? Well, it was um, originally it was a bunch of students who gathered all day, taking shifts from eight in the morning to protest that the administration even let them into the building. Basically, was their biggest issue is that there's been issues on campus with um, white supremacy and racism with like swastikas being drawn and carved into the walls. So they wanted to say, why do you let this happen? And especially that, why did you let Charlie Kirk on campus? One of the chief complaints about Turning Point USA as an organization, whether it's fair or not, is that they share this same space as other alt-right or with alt-right groups like the Project Europa or the American Identity Movement. Again, that's maybe fair, not fair, I can't really say. But Charlie Kirk did spend a significant portion of his time speaking on Monday night, speaking against racism, talking about the need for greater diversity, especially in the conservative movement, and that 
any sort of white supremacy or white nationalism within his group is not tolerated. Now, there have been instances in the past where um, so-called white nationalists or white supremacists have been identified within the Turning Point USA organization. Now, those folks have been fired or have been let go or have been dismissed, but those complaints continue to come up every time Turning Point is mentioned. And that was one of the chief concerns at UNR is that a lot of folks on campus, especially given the era of racial tensions here, felt that Turning Point USA being allowed to have this large-scale rally or large-scale presentation kind of flew in the face of those people who felt that there is this issue of white supremacy here at UNR. Were the protesters accusing Charlie Kirk of of being a white supremacist? Yes. um, There were big signs, big placards that they were holding because they weren't able to keep them as sandwich boards anymore, like they told them earlier in the day. Um, It was... Definitely the more concept of white nationalism and racism, not Charlie in particular. And when I spoke to them, they said, we're not here just for the event. It's mostly to protest the administration. But before the event happened, the protest was a lot of students saying that Charlie Kirk wasn't welcome and that they wanted to not let something like this happen on campus. Inside the inside the event, you, you said that the, the protesters got in, but were a majority of the people there in support of Kirk and his message? At least 90% of the people there were in support of him. Would you say most of those people were students, or did you see a lot of community members? You know, that that part was actually evenly split, I'd say. There was a significant number of students, of course. Um, but when you, outside those first five or ten rows, you saw a lot of, you know, community members. Um, there were some, I saw some Republican donors, actually, uh, conservative donors in the in the crowd. I saw lots of, I would say, baby boomer generation folks wearing Trump hats or MAGA hats or Trump 2020 paraphernalia, a lot of that kind of stuff. So I would definitely say it was an even mix between students and community. What was the university's response to all of this, both letting Kirk in and then kind of the criticism that they were receiving from the protests outside? There was no response from the university, essentially. There have been a number of political rallies here on campus over the last few months. Several Democratic presidential candidates have stopped by UNR. This, I think, has, was seen by them as, as kind of in that same vein. That being said, like like Mark said, a large police pres- presence on campus that day. And as a matter of fact, if you were on the fourth floor of the Joe Crowley Student Union, there were signs everywhere that actually talked about the content of the event not reflecting the opinion. Actually, I'll, I'll retreat it to you. The content of this event does not reflect the opinion or an endorsement by the University of Nevada, Reno. This event is not presented at state expense. So, I mean, that that was made abundantly clear. That was actually an announcement that was made before the event itself. And, and coincidentally, I don't know if it was planned or if it just so happened to be this way, but the following day on Tuesday was President UNR President Mark Johnson's State of the University address. And in that, he did touch on some of the racial issues that have been going on or some of the um, tensions that have been going on here on campus. But, you know, it, it, that, at this point, it was still somewhat of a tacit response. All right, cool. Well, thank you, Paul and Mark, for being on this week and uh, for, for chatting with me all the way across the state. Absolutely, buddy. Yeah, thank you. All right, Jacob, we're going to talk about Joker, which is the sensation of the country. You saw it before I did, so I'm going to let you go first. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs sideways? Thumbs sideways. Okay, let's hear about that. So 
obviously, the, the, so much has been said about the movie before it came out. And so I think expectations are what really mattered before you went and saw it. And when I left, it was a very strange feeling because it had done many things very well, but it also did many things very poorly. And so it almost felt like – I don't want to say I was disappointed, but I was disappointed because there was such fervor going in and I sort of expected to love it or hate it. And coming out so muted – uh, now I'm just sad that we argued so much about it. Like, so let, let's talk about what you thought before I give you my opinion. Um, uh, what did you think they did very well? I think that the movie does a very good job at making you feel uncomfortable and I think it, that's very intentional. Uh, a lot of the times the movie makes it, makes it very clear what it wants to do and how it wants you to feel, although I'm not sure that everyone got it. There were many times where the movie would make a joke, quote unquote, and it it's supposed to be funny, quote unquote, and it's also horrifying. And so I think as an audience, you're supposed to be horrified or at least conflicted. But there were these weird moments where the entire theater laughed at something that was blatantly horrific. And I don't know how, how I feel about that to this day. I think it was maybe one of those weird social things where one person laughs and everyone laughs. But my jaw was on the ground. I was like, I can't believe this room of 100 people are like laughing at this like brutal – violence really and so but it 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 did what it was trying to do so i think it that was very well done i think it was also very poorly written <laughs> I poorly think written in what way the dialogue in particular seemed very i don't want to use the word ham-fisted but it was very on the nose uh very on the nose where there is a very important scene about a third of the way through where where some wall street bros start singing <laughs> uh, some wall street bros start singing send in the clowns Man, I just can't take that seriously. Like, I think it's supposed to be evocative of Clockwork Orange, but it does so in a way that's just like farce. So, Clockwork Orange is like my second or third favorite movie of all time. I don't know if I've ever told you that, but um, uh, let me tell you what I thought. Uh, I, when you say it was poorly written, first of all, my expectations were a little different than yours. I'd read a, some of the reviews. I try not to read that many reviews before I see a movie because I don't want because so many of them have spoilers. But basically, I, oh, this is harrowing. It's extremely violent and dark and disturbing, and you wouldn't. I didn't find it to be that. I thought the movie itself, and this is the negative part of it for me, I thought it was pretty predictable. In other words, I thought the story was pretty predictable, uh, mostly because I had somewhat heard about what it was about. But, but there was nothing that really surprised me. Even the moments of extreme violence I saw coming before they occurred. I don't know if you did, but it was obvious when he was going to go crazy and kill somebody. Sorry to spoil that. People die in, in, in the movie. But what I thought was spectacularly good about about the movie in, 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 were two things. First of all, Joaquin Phoenix's performance, I, I think, is one of the finest performances I've ever seen on film. His descent into madness uh, is very believable. And, and once you learn about why and all the rest of it, I think that's very believable. And the movie's just incredibly well made, Jacob. I mean, it's a very, very well made movie. I'm not talking about the script. I'm talking about technically the, the way that it's made. I thought it was very, very, very well done. I, I just – I don't really get what all the sensation is about though. It's not some movie that – I thought you know they say it's going to linger with you and it's going to disturb you. Know, I, I don't find that. Well, I haven't found it lingered with me either. I just thought it was highly disturbing in the moment. But I think that was one of its strengths that that sort of uh, – you're right. It was very well made and Joaquin Phoenix does a, do a very good job. And so when he does sort of lose his mind you know, literally and figuratively throughout the movie, like that's all very well done. 
But I think what's important to all this is the the guy who directed this movie, Todd Phillips, also directed The Hangover. And so if you really think about it, it's like what if we had a really serious Joker movie directed by the guy who did The Hangover? And this is exactly that. I guess that's right. And I, I keep trying to think that – I keep trying to forget that he did The Hangover. But you know, think about the dialogue. It didn't really bother me as much as you. And one of the reasons is if you think about even the really tremendous, in my opinion, Batman movies made by, by Christopher Nolan and some of the things that Christian Bale says in those movies are so – comic book comical right they are right i mean mm-hmm. it's, it's it, the dialogue is just it, it's it's just not uh, that great there was some social commentary here uh, too, I think that was going on that that was kind of hit and miss to me, right? I would agree with that. The, the social commentary and so much has been made about you know is this an incel manifesto? Which spoiler, right. no, <laughs> right? But but it's kind of getting there, but it almost doesn't say anything. And and this is the trap with Hollywood, right? Where I don't think any movie that's mainstream, right? And let's not pretend the Joker isn't mainstream. It is. It's the biggest October release ever. Um, any movie that's in that category can't really say too much. You can't really buck so many trends and, and the way that you know Hollywood is about making money in any movie. I mean this movie tries to be critical of this elite upper class, but it really falls short of saying anything meaningful many, many times. Right. I, I just don't think it works as social commentary. And I guess we should wrap this up. Because it was so well made and, and because I was really – Pretty, I, I, I think Joaquin Phoenix is, is a great actor already. Uh, he's the one who should have won for Gladiator, not Russell Crowe. But that's a, that's an argument for a different day. But uh, I, I just, I, I think that this, I'd probably give it three or four stars. I would agree. I, I, I put it on a scale of ten, but seven out of ten yeah. for me. I because there are certainly many things about it that are good and and make it worth watching. But for me, I don't know if I'd watch it again. All right. I hope everyone listening will go see it and uh, and then tell us whether Jacob and I are right. We know we're right, but you can you're free to have your opinion. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else podcasts are found. And if you want to help the show, you can do so by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. And of course, telling your friends to check us out as well. If you have any criticism, comments, praise, or want to complain about John's movie, Hot Takes, you can email me at joey at theenvyindie.com. And if you want to sponsor an indie event or the podcast, you can email editors at theenvyindie.com. If you would like to support our work in nonprofit journalism, you can click the support our work button on our site. I'd like to thank Joan Ebert for being on this week, as well as Jacob, Jackie, and John. I'd also like to thank KUNV for letting us use their studios this week and the awesome folks that always help us out down there. Sam Mann, Kevin Crawl, and Dave Norris. You guys are the best. Our original theme song is by People With Bodies, and you can find more of their music on Spotify. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.